worldwide peace, we often forfeit. I'd like to have you remain standing for the reading of God's Word here today. It's going to be from the book of Haggai, chapter 1. It's an Old Testament book, one of the minor prophets. But he doesn't have a minor message. Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. And the sermon this morning is entitled, God's House First. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehoiadak, the high priest. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, these people say, the time has not yet come to build, to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. You may be seated. There are very few preachers <coughs> preach from this section of Scripture. And so my guess is that you know very little about Haggai. I think, therefore, it's going to be healthy for all of you this morning. If I gave you a context and some background about the author of this book, about the historical context of his time, and the theme of this book, I want you to pay close attention for all these are very important. Not much is known about the man Haggai. The Hebrew word, his name simply means festal. And some have therefore speculated that he was born on one of Israel's feast days. Furthermore, it is a fact that God's house, when healthy and built, is cause for great celebration and festivity. So maybe that's the name given here. That God's house ought to be rebuilt and there ought to be a time of festivity again when the Lord's house is rebuilt. Nothing is known about Haggai's family or genealogy. And like most of us, Haggai was used by God for his work and died rather namelessly. Uh, This is fine because for all of us, we must decrease, God must increase, and if most of us die namelessly, so be it, as long as God uses us for his purpose. We do know firmly that this book was written in 520 B.C., We know this because verse 1 here tells us that it occurred in the second year of Darius the king. 
in the sixth month, in the first day of the month. And that's going to firmly place the writing of this text in 520, which was the second year of Darius the king. And now the beautiful thing about the Bible is because it is without error and infallible, it is always historically accurate. And our archaeology always supports the facts presented in the Bible. It's not like the other books sometimes of, of supposed sacred writing where people write things and when you fact check it, it doesn't line up. The Bible is always true. So when it says the second year of Darius's reign, we know for a fact it's 520 B.C. It is historically accurate. And of the millions of archaeological discoveries that have been made, none, not even one, has contradicted the Bible. In fact, all have supported it, shutting the mouths often of even the harshest critics. give you one example of this. Years ago, scholars would mock the Bible because time and time again in the Old Testament, they would talk about a people called the Hittites. And not even a single archaeological discovery had been made of this Hittite civilization up until that time. And so, scholars would mock the Bible, calling it historically inaccurate, and causing the faith of many to crumble. But thank God for the ones who persevered. Because years later, archaeological discoveries continuing, and one day, a man went and discovered and continued to dig, and now you could go to the University of Chicago and get an entire master's degree just on the Hittite civilization alone. The Bible has an amazing way of uh, vindicating itself, because it's truly the Word of God. It is without error, infallible, historically accurate in all its parts. And so we know that it was written in 520 B.C. It was written... And to give you a background on this, uh, in the context of the Persian Empire, which had taken over the Babylonian Empire. At one point, Babylon was the most powerful empire in the world. Until this day, you can look it up yourself, the hanging gardens of Babylon are considered as one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Marvelous! Along with, say, the Pyramid of Giza, the the statue at Colossus, the hanging gardens of Babylon were, are still one of the ancient wonders of the world. Not many of them remain. The, uh, the pyramid over in Giza still remains. The, the gardens are no longer there, but it is, it was an ancient wonder of the world. It was a marvel. And God used this pagan empire to conquer His people Judah. Judah is the lower part of the nation of Israel. Israel was once one. And it split after the reign of Solomon because of God's wrath falling upon Solomon for his immense lust after following after unbelieving women. We'll talk about that later, but beginning with Solomon's leadership, Judah, like northern Israel, had fallen into idolatry and were committing all forms of evil, evil evil that I can't even speak about on the stage. If you think today is bad with transgender bathrooms and gay marriage, it was horrible back then. Christians of every age, godly people of every age, had to endure great evil. Israel had fallen into all forms of idolatry. 
And it started, I will say, it started with its leader. Because as goes the leader, so often goes the nation. And that's important for us to remember when we pray for, the Bible says to pray for the leaders of your country. Your president could be Barack Obama who supports gay marriage and abortion, but the Bible still commands you to pray that he would repent and steer this nation in the right way. And you should think about that when you vote for the next president. Which president, which candidate has principles that line up most closely to the scriptures? Both of them are not saved. I don't think Trump or Hillary are saved. But which one holds principles that line up to scripture? Who will exacerbate the sins of a nation and who will seek to mitigate it? These are things that you ought to ask yourself as you recognize that faith intersects with real life. And it's very important. Solomon's decision to turn away from God and marry unbelieving wives caused him to commit immense idolatry. The man who built one of the greatest edifices in the world, the, the temple, still marveled at today. The temple of God in Jerusalem. That very man turned away from God in the later years of his life and went after woman after woman after woman who turned his heart from the true and living God to idols. And so as he turned, so did the nation with him. And God would send prophet after prophet. In fact, much of the Old Testament as we're going to go through later in Bible study, you'll see that it starts well in the garden. And as you read and you go through the entire Bible ending in Malachi, you will see that it is a nation that God time and time again sends prophets, sends preachers, asking them to repent and repent until finally He has to bring destruction because they will not listen or turn from their evil ways. Israel went first. Israel, northern Israel went first. It was conquered by the Assyrians. And God continued to have mercy on Judah because it was Jerusalem in within Judah, David's city, that God continued to have mercy on them. But eventually, He had enough. So the last prophet He sent to Jerusalem was Jeremiah. And Jeremiah would cry to that city, asking their king Zedekiah to repent. And Zedekiah would not. And so God had enough of that, and in 587 or 586, we're not too sure about which year, it's one of those two years, Babylon, in its height of power, comes in and destroys Jerusalem. Now, I want to say destroy, I mean they absolutely decimate the city. When you read the accounts of what occurred during the siege, and this is what ancient warfare looked like, an invading army would come in, cut off all things going in and out, eventually famine would come in. It got so severe that the fulfillment of the Deuteronomy prophetic word, what would occur to a nation turning from God, indeed did occur. The famine got so severe that they did what they do in North Korea. Uh, Parents cannibalized and ate their own children. That's how bad it got in Jerusalem. And, and eventually the siege broke through. They came in, they raped all the women. Lamentations is about that. It's the, uh, Lamentations is the rape of Jerusalem. Bible's not a PG book. It's not even a PG book. It is a harsh book with harsh realities. And uh, they laid the entire city bare and, and, and the temple of God was destroyed, leveled, 
and all the gold taken into Babylon. And the book of Daniel then later picks up on it as one of the Babylonian kings drinks with the golden cups that they had taken from Jerusalem, and that's where the hand appears. Meany, meany, tekel, you parson, on the wall. And, uh, and, and th- at that very night, the Persian Empire comes in and, and destroys the Babylonian Empire. But there's a, there's a well, really awesome history here. And, and, and in case, and sometimes we all do, I think, I think the reality here is we, we all tend to forget, we tend to forget about how horrible the wrath of God is. And of the benefits, and I think one of the reasons why we're so short-sighted on that is because we don't read the Old Testament. We read the New Testament, and that's good, we ought to, because we are in a new covenant, but the God of the New Testament is the same God of the Old Testament, amen? And so because of our neglect of the Old Testament, many times we fail to see how horrible the wrath of God is. We talk about repent and believe in Jesus because hell is going to be bad. And then at a certain point we tell ourselves, well, hell is not going to be that bad. If you ever want a foretaste, and I mean a foretaste because as bad as the Old Testament was, it will not compare to the horrors that you will see in hell if you end up there. Revelation says that the smoke of their torment ascends day and night without stop. If you look at the Old Testament, it gives you a foretaste. What happened was, not only did they rape and kill the entire city of Jerusalem, once the captors grabbed the king, they captured all the king's sons, lined them up, and um, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, killed all of uh, Zedekiah's sons before his very eyes, so that the last thing that Zedekiah saw before they plucked out his eyeballs was the death of all of his sons. That's how gruesome that was. Zedekiah's sons were killed, massacred before his very eyes, and then his eyes were plucked out. And they took him away to Babylon. That's a foretaste of the wrath of God. If you're sitting there and thinking, man, mothers giving birth and then cooking their children because they're so hungry is bad? I will say to you, that is just a foretaste of the horrors of hell. God breaks through in history at times and shows us that. He does it in Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire and brimstone raining down. He showed it to us in Noah's time with the great flood that just absolutely... And this was a, a flood that was global. The Bible says that it covered every mountaintop. Huge catastrophe. And then you, he, sees, he shows it to us through, through um, Israel's historic history as you see armies coming in and God is saying, I will pour out my wrath. And boy, was that wrath poured out. God's wrath is intense. And if you think about it, that's still, I would say, a fraction of the horrors that you will experience one day in hell if you end up there. Which is a great warning for all of us. To evangelize. The days are short and great will be the wrath of Almighty God. Don't mess around with God's wrath. I am warning you, as Jeremiah did, as Haggai does, time and time again, turn while there is time because God's wrath is coming and it's not.
going to be light. Like I said, as with all empires, Babylon itself, no matter how many times Daniel told the, the rulers in Babylon to repent, the rulers in Babylon did not repent. And eventually, because of their own sins and corruptions, Babylon fell. And it was conquered by the Persians. And you know what's amazing about this? Is that God dictates history. And He does it for a purpose. He does it for the worship of Himself. As prophesied, the Persian king Cyrus the Great, one of the greatest rulers that ever ruled. If you look at world history, you you read about Alexander the Great, you read about Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus was an awesome and powerful ruler. A pagan, by the way. But for some odd reason, after he conquers Israel and Judah in 539 BC, because of the hand of Almighty God, in 538 he gives a shocking decree. You want to know what that was? Israel, by the way, Judah is a tiny nation full of exiles. Nobody gives a rip about them. They're gone. And yet, Cyrus the king mysteriously gives an edict in 538 saying, the Jews are to go back to Jerusalem and build a temple. And this is odd. You would think, why is this occurring? There's only one reason for it. It's the hand of Almighty God. God is able to move the hearts of men, women, empires, and emperors, believers or unbelievers, whatever the way, whatever way He desires. The Bible says that God moves the hearts of kings like a river, moving it wherever He desires. It's a fascinating story that we should we should pay close attention to as we pray. You may be praying and praying for God to move in a loved one's heart, but do not give up. God can move in that person's heart. Uh, We're going to be reading Hunger for God together. In Hunger for God, there's a fascinating account of of, of a pastor. um, His name is Dr. Kim. And uh, during during the 80s, uh, I think it was the 80s or 70s, they were planning for um, a crusade. A million people, estimated, was going to come out to this plaza in Korea for, for an evangelistic crusade. And in the very last minute, the police took away their, uh, their uh, permit to meet. And so what all the pastors did, they went up into a prayer mountain, 40-day fast, they came down, and mysteriously, he ran into the police chief, and he said, oh yeah, we changed our mind. Here's the permit. And that turned out to be one of the greatest gatherings of Christians to the known world today. A million people gathered to hear the gospel that day. God moves the hearts of people, believers or unbelievers. And he did this in in this book. He moved the heart of Cyrus the king. We must fast and pray. We must. Because our God is still a God that moves the hearts of people. Amen? God moves. And so after that incident, God moves in the heart of Cyrus the Great and he allows Israel to go back. And this is where the book of Ezra and Nehemiah picks up. They then begin writing about how Cyrus the king permitted Jews to return. And it was an amazing event because after 70 years in exile for their sins, under Ezra and Nehemiah's leadership, the people of Israel finally began rebuilding the house of God. But what started with a joyous rebuild by Ezra chapter 3 becomes stalled. How many of us know that happens? We start excited with the great, great, like, excitement about doing God's work, about coming out to early morning prayer, about reading the Word of God, and after a while it just stalls. 
That's exactly what happens here. By chapter 3, Ed, the temple work got stalled, not partially due to, uh, uh, totally due to their own spiritual lethargy, but also due to opposition from people around them. Whenever you do God's work, people will oppose you. But unlike, unlike uh, the prophets who, who still pre- persevered, these people, after 70 years in exile, received some opposition, and instead of persevering, they gave up. They stopped. Instead of praying and keep on going, they stopped the work and reigning for, and, and give you a, a little ba- uh, background here, Cyrus dies, his son Cambyses reigns for eight years, he dies. So the general Darius comes into power and now he's going to be a pivotal figure because now this king has to intercede because of all these opposing nations. To this day, Israel is very isolated. If, if it wasn't, I'm telling you right now, if it wasn't for the hand of God upon Israel's life, that nation would not exist. You know how many countries hate Israel? Virtually every nation around Israel hates Israel. Why? Because I believe, as Paul says in Romans, they are still God's covenant people. And Now, don't get me wrong, the Jews today who don't believe in Jesus, if they die today, will go to hell. There is no other way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. But Paul says this, because of God's covenant, there will come a day when most of Israel will turn to Jesus. We haven't seen that day yet. But God still has His eye on Israel. And then you will know that the end is nigh. Israel will one day, as God turned and worked through Jeremiah's prophecy and then Cyrus allowed them to return, Israel will one day in masses turn to Jesus, Yeshua as Messiah. As Zechariah says, they will look on Him whom they pierce, and Israel will weep for her son. Remember, you got to remember this. Jesus is the son of, He is a Jewish, Jewish Messiah, far before He was our Savior to the Gentiles. There will come a day when Israel will be saved, and God has His hand on Israel. I can guarantee you this, Israel will never be wiped out from the face of this earth. Babylon doesn't exist. Edom doesn't exist. Moab doesn't exist. These nations don't exist. But Israel will never be wiped out because, as Paul says, there will come a day when, through God's grace, many in Israel will come to Christ. We have yet to see that day. And until that day comes, I think Israel will still be on the map, no matter how many Middle Eastern nations hate them, no matter how many presidents hate them, they will still stay on the map. Well, it's the second year of Darius, and the word of the Lord now powerfully comes to Haggai the prophet. Why? Well, now do the math. They came, 538, second year of Darius, the work was not being done. In fact, the Word of God here says that the temple of God was still in ruins. They had begun, but by and large, nothing was accomplished. You know how many years passed? Eighteen years. Eighteen years passed since God allowed them to return to the land and until this moment. And it's as if God, through Haggai the prophet, says enough. You guys are dragging your feet. The house still are in ruins. You're not interested in God's work. You're interested in your own jobs. You want to know something? This is not judgment. It's love. God loved them too much 
to just allow them to do what they wanted to do. He knew that Israel would only be blessed if they put him first and worshipped him. And so after 18 long years of waiting, God finally sends his word, which is rare. His word is rare. It's purer than gold. Finally sends his word through Haggai the prophet. And because he does this, the, the temple is rebuilt and God would renew his covenant with Israel. That was an application for all of us today. If you hear the word of God being preached clearly, biblically and accurately and it touches your heart, take that as God's grace. God is doing this because He loves you. He's doing this because He wants to bring you back into a relationship with Him. To worship Him because that is the only way you're going to be blessed. And I want to urge you, don't just listen as the Apostle James says. Act. The whole book here will be about acting on the Word of God. There are many people who will hear God's Word today and not act on it. Blessed are you, for it shows God's love upon your life when you hear God's Word and you act on it. It is a sign of God's favor upon your life. He loves you and He's calling you to Himself. Now, I want to say this. A decaying house of God demonstrates a decaying relationship between God and His people. Not just during the time of Israel and Cyrus, but today. You've been part of churches where there's infighting, where there's bad theology, where there's bad preaching, where church discipline is not being exercised, and all sorts of sin is happening even on worship teams and on pastoral teams in secret. I will guarantee you what that will lead to is a decaying relationship. It leads to defiling, not holiness. A decaying house of God demonstrates a decaying relationship between God and His people. And that's why God wanted this house rebuilt. Every time He looks down on it, and it's a house lying in ruins, it denotes the fact that His relationship with His people lies in ruins. And it brings about defilement. And there are five themes throughout the book of Haggai. I want to give them to you right now, because we're going to seriously study this book for the next couple of weeks. And you're going to keep an eye on it as you walk throughout this book, and you're going to make this note because we, I, I am going to ask you to write about it later when we do have our Bible study. Five themes throughout Haggai. Number one, theme number one, the restoration of God's house. A restored house highlights God's desire to renew a covenant with His people. This renewed covenant is demonstrated by God's presence. So that's the first theme that you'll see throughout the book, the restoration of God's house. Second, the prophet's word is God's word. For us, that's simply another way of saying, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Third, the Lord is sovereign. The phrase, the Lord of hosts, occurs um, at least 14 times in this book. And it's to show that God primarily, God controls all the affairs of men. Primarily so that it could all lead to true worship. All of history right now is being orchestrated so that ultimately one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord. That's where history is going. That's where we're leading up to right now as time is progressing. We're, we're moving history towards that moment. And you're not here by accident. The, uh, fourth, the people must work. 
A restored house of God will bring pleasure and glory to God. You see that in verse 8 in your text. And it will bring blessings to His people. And that's all good. We stop and we say, that's awesome. We want to bring pleasure to God. We want to bring glory to God. We want blessings on ourselves. But listen to me here. One of the key points of Haggai is this. Hard physical work must be done with a right heart. Hard physical work must be done with a right heart. And fifth, the restoration of David's house. Zerubbabel, the heir of David, is promised an elevator status, and Haggai is very highly messianic in his message. It ultimately has a Christological core, and it's preparing the way for Jesus Christ, the ultimate son of David. And this is very important because unless we miss, uh, we get this, we, we miss the point. Jesus is the point of Haggai. Jesus is the point of Haggai. And you'll see all five themes throughout this book, and I want you to keep an eye th- uh, for it as we go throughout the book, especially point number five is going to show up towards the later end of the book. It's a short book. I think it's only two chapters. This will show up later, but you'll see the themes as we work through it. But for now, let's turn our attention to the first nine verses here, shall we? So the year is 520 B.C., and after 18 years, the house of God is still in ruins. And people really, let's put it honestly, they don't give a rip about God's house. Uh, Verse 4, I think, states it clearly. The people work hard to make sure that their own homes are nice and paneled, but God's house lies in ruins. Zerubbabel is the governor of Judah, Joshua is the high priest, and these are the two men that Haggai will address at the outset of this book. As the people live routine, peaceful lives, the word of God powerfully comes to Haggai in verse 2. Apparently, as we read the beginning, the people were saying, no, it's not the right time to rebuild. Now is not the time. And as they were saying that, they were busy making their lives comfortable and their own homes nice. Look at verse 4. There's a rhetorical question here. Is it a time for yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, referring to God's house, lies in ruins? This is an powerful indictment on the people of Jerusalem. I want you to know something. There's a big difference between post-Babylon exile, Israel, and pre-Babylon Israel. You want to know what the difference is? Israel after the exile to Babylon, and Israel before the exile to Babylon, there's a key difference if you read the Old Testament. What's missing? Tell you what's missing. After the exile to Babylon, 70 years they're there, Idolatry is gone. God just pretty much burned that out of His people. Literally. After the exile, there's no more worshipping of wood and stone and Baal. All that is gone. You know how throughout Israelite history, they always had a problem with worshipping idols. God split the Red Sea and one of the first things they do is bow down to a calf. Golden statue of a calf. But after Babylon, it's as if they learned their lesson, and there's no more wood and stone idols in Israel. 
But I want to make something clear. Just because you can't see your idol doesn't mean that you don't have any. Because unless the idol is replaced with God, you're going to just substitute one idol for another. You're going to substitute pornography with drinking. You're going to substitute uh, heterosexual fornication for perhaps even homosexual fornication. Whatever it is, it's always going to be replaced unless you find your full satisfaction in God. When you look at this book, you will see that the idolatry in Haggai is very reminiscent of another group of people. Americans. We don't really worship, most of us don't worship wood and stone idols anymore. But what's their issue? The sin here is very similar to us. It's comfort over kingdom. It's materialism over missions. It's, uh, it's putting personal self in front of the Holy Spirit. And as a result of not putting God first, they were underneath a curse. Look at verses 5 through 9. God actually informs them of what He's been doing. And just in case, by and large, I want to just say this. A lot of suffering that happens in our world today, we don't have answers for from the Bible. You know, it, pastorally speaking, it would be great if the Bible ever said, uh, if you see a person die in this way, it's because they did that sin. It doesn't say that. There are times where people suffer. The generally, in the uh, principle in this in this world, the way God has made this world is, especially for Christians, not for non-Christians. One of the ways that God disciplines Christians is that when you sin against Him, He brings adversity into your life. But that's not always the case. So we'll read a book like Proverbs, which gives us general principles. And we read that today when we opened up in our, our uh, responsive reading. Uh, he who honors his father is a blessing, but he who curses his parents is a scourge to his mother. We read verses like that, right? So in other words, as a general principle, if you honor your mother and your father, things could go well with you. Why? Because God makes it go well. Because you're obeying the fifth commandment. But then comes the book of Job afterwards and gives us exception number one, that it doesn't always go that way. Generally speaking, if you obey God, things will go well. Yes, that's true. Generally speaking, if you do wickedness, you'll be wiped out. It's true. Generally speaking, AIDS is a homosexual disease. It's true. We see it. Our hardens heart, ah, that can't be, I don't want to see causation. Well, it's there. That's, that's just real talk. But then Job gives us an exception. And an exception number one with Job is that sometimes bad things happen to good people. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. And that's in the sovereign hand of God. And so a lot of times when we look out in the world today, we don't know why a Christian mother experiences a miscarriage. We don't know why a Christian couple gives birth to a Down syndrome child. We don't know why a faithfully serving uh, uh, a woman of God is, is killed in, in, a, in an accident where a teenager is driving drunk and illegally. Bad things do happen to good people in this world, and uh, we don't always have the answers. And, and I, you know, that's very clear in Scripture. But in verses 5 through 9, God actually establishes causation. In fact, 
you'll see this repeated. God is the one who says, consider their ways. Look at verse 5. Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. That's a good word for all of you here today. Wherever you are in life right now, that's exactly what God wants you to do. That's God's word, not mine. God wants you to stop what you're doing and think about where you're headed in life right now. Consider what you're thinking, what's in your heart, and the direction of your life. Consider. The wise consider. The fool continues to go off the cliff to his own demise. So God is saying, consider your ways. Now look at verse 6. You have sown much and harvested little. Modern equivalent would be, you work from 9 to 9, but you don't gain anything. You eat, but you never have enough. You can go to a fine restaurant, gives you a little bit of pleasure, gone. You go from restaurant to restaurant, but you're still not satisfied. You drink, but you never have you full. You get drunk, gives you a high, but now you need more to give you the same high. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. At the end of the day, you look in your bank account, everything's gone. Nothing's lasting. And then he says again, I want you to really consider your ways. Before you say, oh, that was just chance, it wasn't God, consider your ways. And then he says this, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house that I may take pleasure in it, and I may be glorified, says the Lord. And then look at verse 9, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And you, when you brought it home, when you brought your income home, I blew it away. Why? And then God actually gives us the reason. A lot of times He doesn't in life. I told you, a lot of times God doesn't give us the reason for suffering. But here He does. You want to know why your life is so frustrating and messed up? Because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house. He clearly lays it out. I know some of you might be thinking right now, well, poverty happened to them because they didn't put God first, but that's not happening to me. First of all, how do you know? It just might. Every day you go to work and you're able to work with your hands or use your brain, do you not realize that's God? God could take that away in a moment. One fall, one accident. I was talking with a courtyard, um, a neighbor of mine that lives in my courtyard there. Um... I think it was the final year before his retirement. He was, uh, became a manager delivering papers and, and heading uh, at the New York Times uh, newspaper distribution. I think it was his final year. And uh, freak accident, he fell off the back of his truck. And uh, he, the man, it's, it's really sad. There are times where I help him up because he walks with um, an incredible limp, with a, a, an assistant cane. And sometimes when the thing folds on him, he falls down and he can't even get back up. He can't. He'll lie on the ground for five to ten minutes trying to get to a staircase or something to try to get himself back up. He can't get back up. Very proud man all those years. Worked hard with, with his hands. Provided for his family. Took great pride in his work. And God, I mean literally just like that. How do you know that this is not going to happen to you tomorrow? God could just wipe it out in a second. Maybe not health. Maybe your employer now all of a sudden looks at you in a disfavorable way. And says, you know what? I don't want you anymore. How do you know this is not going to happen to you? 
You don't, because anytime you bring any work, study hard, earn a living, it's by the sheer grace of a God. And furthermore, let's say your bank account is getting large. So what? Does it mean anything? Is it eternally significant? You'll eat food, but you're never satisfied. You don't have joy. You go to a good restaurant, you don't have joy. Your life is in ruins. You drink, but you're thirsty and you're still not satisfied. You put the finest clothes on yourself, name brand, but you find yourself spiritually naked before your own eyes. Brothers and sisters, this sort of emptiness is only satisfied by Christ. And I will say this, until you learn to put God first, these things will continue sucking all the joy and satisfaction out of life. And no, no, it's not, I'm not satisfied with this this area of my life, so I'm going to go to another job. It's not, I'm going to go to another marriage. It's not, I'm going to go find myself a better vacation spot. I guarantee you those are not the answers. Look at verse 9. You looked for much and behold it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. And here's the timeless application for all of us here today. Listen very carefully. Success begins in life when you put God first. Success begins in life when you put God first. You can learn this the easy way. You know what the easy way is? You heard me say it, and now you go, okay, I believe, and put God first. That's the easy way. Or you can learn it the hard way. Where God literally has to blow all your things away until He brings you to this recognition. Your choice. But one way or another, you will learn this lesson. I will guarantee you that. Does it mean that you'll become rich if you start following God? No, it does not. He does God promises to meet all your needs. He doesn't promise to make you rich. But are you confused about what to do next with your life? Does, is your life beginning to feel quite aimless? You don't know where you're headed? And my answer there is, if it is, then don't st- stand up and simply do something. You've been doing that your entire life. You've just been doing something. I want to urge you, get into a serious relationship with God. Get on your knees. Fall in, fall in love with God. Establish intimacy. Believe in the gospel of Christ. And seek Him out. And put Him first. And let Him guide your life. How many times do you have to continue to try to do things on your own strength, only to have God just blow it away? Years will be spent wasted. Before you look in the mirror, you're gray and you're wrinkled, and you realize, I've wasted my life. Nothing's coming to fruition. And it starts with believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It starts with believing that, yes, there is a God who loves you, and we love to talk about that, but this God also is a God of justice and holiness. And because of that, He has to send every single sinner to hell. But the great news is that though you and I, every human on this planet deserves hell, God loved you so much, He sent His only Son, Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, historically accurate. He died for your sins on the cross. He bore the wrath that Zedekiah received, that you and I should receive in hell. He bore in His own flesh. 
And after dying on the cross for your sins, three days later, He historically, not mythically, rose again from the dead. So that when you die, you don't have to face judgment like Judah did before Almighty God. You will hear the words, you are washed, you are forgiven. Why? Because if you repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord, God, and Savior, you are from that point on a Christian who is forgiven and headed to heaven. But let me say this clear. Turning to God, as Israel found out, is not merely doing this and this and I'm having both. No. It's a complete abdication of this, turning away and putting faith completely in Jesus Christ and saying, God, you are full sufficiency. And that's the whole thing. You are, you are more to me than food. And as, as Habakkuk says, you, I have more joy in you because even if my bank account says zero, my modern paraphrase of what Habakkuk is saying, even if my bank account is zero and you take everyone I love away from me, as long as I have the God of my salvation, I will rejoice. And that's what salvation is. And God loves you too much to allow you to find joy in anything else except Himself. It's like a husband who loves his wife. He, he is so jealous over her. Not in, not in a psychotic way, but in a biblically good way. He is so jealous over her. And he is, he is absolutely concerned that, that her joy and her fulfillment is not found in any other man but in Himself. And the greatest honor, by the way, to a man is that the wife says, You no other, you, bring me the greatest joy. And that's, that's the image that we have with Christ. It's not your job. It's not your relationship. It's, it's not going to be anything else except Christ. And that's when He's honored. He won't compete. He won't be second to anything else. And in fact, He loves you so much that if He looks at your life and He sees even something coming close, He'll wipe it out. Oh, He doesn't do that. What? Who did God ask Abraham to sacrifice? His son. Abraham was going to do it. And God said, no, I, I now see you love me above everything else. God is going to break away every single crutch until you put Him first in your life. I'm telling you, you can learn this the hard way or you can learn it the easy way. I'm hoping that you learn it the easy way. God, life is not going to make fu- uh, sense any other way. Uh, why did so much frustration occur in Israel? in their workplaces, in their homes, in their private lives. God says in verse 9, because of my house that lies in ruins. Now this is not a new old, simply an Old Testament principle. Yes, 70 AD came, Romans came in and, and destroyed the temple that they rebuilt. The temple no longer exists. In fact, if you go to Israel today, the only part of that temple that exists is the western front known as the Wailing Wall. That's the only thing that remains. The the temple is gone now. Again, because they rejected Messiah, Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple in in the book of Matthew. And it exactly happened in the year 70. But Paul says that's no matter because that's not the temple of God anymore. If you read the book of Corinthians, who does Paul say is now the temple of God? The church. In fact, it works on a micro and macro level. Uh, corporately, we're the temple of God. So if you read the Greek, the word you there is in plural. You won't pick that up in English, but it's there in the Greek. You, all the people of God gathered right now, you're the temple. 
But then in another passage where he tells us to flee sexual immorality, and he gives us the reason why, he says now privately, individually, you, yourself, your body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. Correct? And so that is why we are to keep this body healthy and holy and free sexual immorality. And Paul says, sexual immorality is a different class of sin all by itself because of the fact that it desecrates the temple of, of God and in whom the Holy Spirit resides. It's a sin on another level. Your body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit and we as a church, we are now the temple of Almighty God. Don't desecrate it. As you go off on a side note, on talk about how you ought to be taking care of yourself, maintaining your health. The question of tattoos and whether or not that's legitimate for the temple comes up. All of these questions, alcohol, drug use, all of these things fundamentally are answered. Now, the Bible never says, thou shalt not smoke marijuana. I remember speaking at a college campus once and we had a Q&A and a student asked me afterwards, is it a sin for me to smoke marijuana? The Bible never says that. Well, the Bible never says to watch pornography either, but it's still a sin. There's a lot of things there, but the principles are laid in the Bible. Does the smoking of weed, or even cigarettes for that matter, take care of this temple, or does it desecrate and weaken it? These are principles that you need to ask yourself. And so as we look at these things, we, we recognize that the temple is no longer the temple in Jerusalem, but it's us, the church. Now watch this. Matthew 6, 31-33, Jesus teaches the same principle that Haggai taught. He says, do not, therefore, do not be anxious. So, conversely, if you don't do this, you're going to be filled with anxiety. Okay? Do not be anxious saying, oh my goodness, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And by the way, why do they have so much anxiety when these questions come into their minds? Because they don't believe there's a God who's taking care of them. That's why. That's why. Gentiles seek after these things. And your Heavenly Father, they don't have a Heavenly Father. You do. You have a Father who loves you and takes care of you. Knows that you need them all. And so because you know you have a Heavenly Father, let the unbelievers worry about this. I'm going to let you free yourself up, knowing that God will take care of these, so that you could seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things, as you seek God's kingdom first, will be added to you. Anxiety just disappears. Some of you are not there yet. I'm urging you to get there. You have just as much anxiety as the rest of the world. You're thinking to yourself, oh my goodness, if I don't graduate and get a job, what am I going to do? You're thinking to yourself, oh my goodness, what if I get fired from this job? You're thinking to yourself, what, what happens if I don't find the right person to marry? And, and, and God is saying, do you have a Heavenly Father or no? Oh yes, I do. Then your doubt is tremendously insulting my son, my daughter. I'm going to take care of you. But seek me first. Seek me first. Because you know what? You're going to tire yourself out. And Haggai goes a step further. Not only are you going to tire yourself out, but God is saying, I love you so much that if you do that, I'm going to blow everything away. I'm literally going to blow everything away. Take a look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you so that I, may, I too may be cheered by the news of you, for I have no one like him. 
Timothy and, and Paul worked together, right? Timothy was a young pastor that Paul trained, who would be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Now listen to this in verse 21. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Oh my goodness, by the time of the New Testament, people still had the same kind of heart that they had in the book of Haggai. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. How many Christians do you know, they, they claim the name of Christ, they call themselves Christians, but they still seek their own interests. They're not primarily concerned with the interest of Jesus Christ. And then he goes and he says, but you know, Timothy's proven worth, meaning his life through actions have proven the fact that he always seeks Christ first. How as a son with uh, with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Are you serving with one another for the gospel? Or are you seeking your own interests first? Uh, we we have a danger right now of being confessionally different from the world, but functionally identical. What do I mean by that? I mean that by our mouths we, comp- we 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 claim Christ, so that's different from the world. Unbelievers, you know, God doesn't exist. Agnostic, I'm not sure. All that other stuff, but but we say no, Jesus is Lord. But functionally, in the way that we live, we don't see any of this. We don't see an actual serving in the gospel. Instead, we see just as much anxiety, just as much pursuit as the rest of the world. And God loves you. And He's saying this, My son, my daughter, as long as you continue to pursue these things, you're going to be filled with the same kind of anxiety and psychological disorders like the unbelievers around you. Do you want to continue in that road? I turn a little bit more personal here. I turn to Mustard Seed. And I say this, Mustard Seed, I, there's no question that this past year, we have as a church, we've gone through a very difficult time. Uh, we, we've been pruned. There's no question about it. We, and, 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 and listen to me this. We're, we're a young church. We're a young church. And there are both positives and negatives that come with that. The positive is that we have so much potential. I know a pastor, up in, uh, he accepted a call in Boston. He, he went and took over a church where most of the church... Uh, and there weren't many left, were all uh, in their 60s and above, and he was doing a lot of funerals. And so in that kind of church, when, when this pastor shared, uh, he, he just finds a hard time in even galvanizing people to go out and do God's work because they're all, their bodies are just broken down. They can't really go out. So I remember telling myself, man, you know, I, I'll pray for you, and I told myself, thank God. That I have, I'm in a situation where, where I have a, y- a lot of young people. But then I realized that if you have a lot of young people, the, although the positive is that like athletes, most of you are in the prime of your lives and, 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 and it's just really thrilling to think about what God can do with your souls that are riveted to do God's work. But the negative is that there's a lot of maturing for you guys to do, for all of us to do. Individuals must grow and determine where they are with Christ. And we've seen this past year, there are some who decided, you know what, Christ isn't really for me. Uh, some of you have to uh, spend some time and mature and determine where you are with this church. Maybe this church isn't really the right fit for you, and, and time will tell. You need, you, you need time to determine that. And many of you are still attempting to answer the marriage question for yourself. You're asking yourself, is God calling me to marriage, or is God calling me to perpetual celibacy? 
And, and, and I've noticed that some of the most difficult problems we've had to deal with in terms of leadership problems is the issue of, of relationships and, and how, how if that's not held uh, with the most delicate care, sin can creep in and could destroy something that God could have intended really for good. Uh, relationships, uh, guy-girl relationships have been very difficult, but, but that's something that a young church has to deal with, whereas an older church where families and marriages are abound don't really have too much of that. And so you recognize in all these factors that played into our past year, and you realize that there's a lot of maturing and figuring out that all of us are doing. And there will come a day within the next five to ten years where a lot of this will be stabilized, and by God's grace, there will be a stabilizing growth. And I look forward to that. But, but I, I, I'm also excited at the fact that as we start with a very like blank page, if you will, we have the ability to grow together and lay down some solid foundations. Foundations that a lot of older churches do not have and where the pastor has to unearth and begin all again. But make no mistake, there's a lot of growing pains ahead. A lot of growing pains. And however exciting as it is right here, the fact remains at this juncture of our lives as a church, there's a lot of work to do. So I was reading the book of Haggai in my private devotions. You might have been asking, why in the world did um, Pastor Steve go from Galatians to this obscure book in the Old Testament? And uh, I bet, I, I'm pretty sure that all of you had no clue as to what book I was going to do next, but you certainly didn't expect the book of Haggai. And I, I, the reason why is because as I was doing my personal devotions and I just wrapped up, finished wrapping up the Old Testament in my own devotional time, the book of Haggai spoke to me in such a powerful way that intersects with where we are in, as a church right now. Um, we're not in ruins. Make no mistake about it. We're not in ruins. But we have a lot of work to do. It's almost like um, um, Cyrus gives the edict and... Ezra and Nehemiah go and they lay down the foundation and, and some of it is still there. And, and, and that's why I, I feel as if when God says it's in ruins, it's not ultimate destruction because Nehemiah and Ezra did some work. I feel like we're, we're like that. We, we got a, a, a group of people now where some, some good foundation is there, but there's still a lot of work to be done. I think God just gave me this book at the right time because... In many ways, the, as Paul tells us that we are now the temple of God, the question that God is asking all of us is, okay, the foundation's there, but the house still needs to be built. Will you put God first and build this house? And I'm just like, yes, God, let's do it. Will you make this house your priority? Will you attend? Will you serve? Will you mentor? Will you clean? Will you disciple? Will you evangelize? Will you pray for your church? Or will you give your best time, effort, and energies to your own pursuits? Giving God the leftovers while His house remains in ruins. Today's text is very clear. That will not be the way of blessing for your life, no matter how hard you try. I guarantee you that. Some of you are wondering... It's, it's, uh, how can I use my life for God's glory? And I'm telling you right now, you can use it as you pour your life out into the building of this church. Uh, throughout the history of the church, the people with the most amount of faith have always done one thing consistently. They have given the church their best time, 
energies, effort, money, all that, all the best of the best they have given it to God. Start from the Old Testament. A person known as the man after God's own heart in the Old Testament, David. If you read David's account as he ends his life, he knows he has to build God, the house of God, but God says, I don't want you to build it, I want your son to build it for me. Yes, ask God, why? He says, because you've been a bloody man. You've been a bloody man. I'm going to make your son a man of peace. And so, but you prepare. And boy, did David prepare. He, when you read the Old Testament, just see how much the modern equivalent of gold he prepared. You can see then why David is called a man after God's own heart. He not only prepared, he took all the money, a lot of the money in his own personal treasury, gave it to Solomon, and he said, use this for the house of God. All of his treasures, all the best of the best for the building of God's house. And that's where Paul then picks up the image in 1 Corinthians and he says to all of you, he says, you can build with gold, silver, or precious stones. In other words, you can build like David. Or you can build with straw, with wood, and hay. Now what's the difference there? In the day of judgment, in the day of fire, wood, hay, and straw burns. Gold, silver, and precious stones are refined. Now, I'll say this. I could give you the best sermon today, and none of you would even know whether or not I just put it together on Saturday night in a rush. But God does. God does. And God's saying, I could do that, but on the day of judgment, if I do that, it'll burn. What will last is if God looks down and He sees... Every time I'm preparing a message, every time everything that's dedicated to this church, am I giving God the best? Worship team leaders, the same thing. What are, how are you preparing? No one could tell you whether or not you missed a beat, but God sees whether or not this really is your best. And if it's not, it's going to burn. It's going to burn. A man after God's own heart, building with the best. Paul did the same thing. Uh, a lot of people think in today's era that the church is not needed. They say things like, I love Jesus, but I hate the church, which is nonsense. I heard one pastor, one of you guys gave me a sermon, a uh, sermonette, I think, about a pastor who said, uh, he flat out said in the beginning, if, if, you're, if you call yourself a Christian and you're not in a church, you're probably dying and going to hell. And you're like, whoa, what does that mean? Does that mean that the church saves? And he draws it out. And the, the, the point that he was trying to make is this. He says, Nowhere in the history of the New Testament until modern times has there been such a thing as a person who believes in Jesus but doesn't join the church of Jesus Christ. A person who believes in the gospel but doesn't join the bride of Christ. And I, I think that's true. God never saves someone and leaves him or her by himself without being part of the body. If Christ is the head, the church is the body. Why are you not part of the body if you're saved? But we live in an age, do we not, because of prosperity gospel teachers, preachers who scam people. People get hurt, and say, so they say things like, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. I'll never join a church. Well, that's great dismay to God, and, 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 and at least to their own spiritual demise. And Paul, we would say, did not do that. A lot of people think that Paul was this maverick going around on missionary journeys, exciting. But Paul did all he did if you wanted to find the one motivating factor behind his life, the man who literally shaped Western civilization, do you know what it was? Churches. Read the book of Corinthians. He says, the anxiety of all the churches is laid upon me. Everything that man did was to plant and grow churches. It's all about churches. Because he was all about building the bride of Christ. 
So I want to say this, if you want to make your life count, do you want to make your life count? And if you do, then be about, sincerely be about, building up the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 3.12. That's the text I shared with you. And Paul said this, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. But the day, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Are you giving your gold, silver, precious stones to your studies and your work and your relationships, or are you giving it to God? We all have the same 24 hours each day. Where do you give your best? Do you give it to God? Or do you give it to yourself? Only you know the answer. Only you know the answer. And you have to ask yourself this question. So I'm going to leave you with this question. Why should you give your all in building up God's house? Some of you might be asking that question. I want to give God the best, but why do I have to give it to the building up of God's house? Why? The answer is in verse 8. Let's go to verse 8. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house. Now here's a purpose clause. That I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. That's why. That's why. Remember one of the themes throughout the book of Haggai is that uh, God's people are expected, expected to do hard work. Uh, read that verse. Going, bringing, and building. God could have just given them the wood in front of their doorstep and said, go build. He doesn't do that. He says, no. Go to the forest and sweat and chop some wood. I don't just chop any wood. Chop the best wood. And not only just chop it, but now sweat and bring it back. Not only just sweat and bring it back, now work hard and build it. Like, wow. I tell you this, all the things in life, we show what it's worth by our blood, sweat, and tears. Whether it's the raising up of children, which is, it takes a lot of effort. It's easy to walk away, but it takes a lot of effort to raise a family. Blood, sweat, and tears, or the building up of a church, or the building up of a business, you will show the worth of anything in life by your blood, sweat, and tears. And literally, as you look at this text, going, bringing, building back, it takes hard work. Are you willing to do it? Are you willing to do it? I know I have to lead by example. Um... If I'm saying all this, but I won't lift a finger, right? That's what the Pharisees did, right? Jesus said, Jesus said they, they lay on men hard burdens, but they themselves don't lift a finger. I need to lead by example. I hope I am. As many of you know, this past week I was uh, in Kansas City. A uh, question might come up. Why is, why is Pastor Stephen going for another doctorate? He already has one. Why does he need another one? And the answer simply is this. I don't plan, right now I don't plan on teaching in seminary. I don't plan on it. That doesn't allure me. God might have different plans for me in the future, but presently, there's no desire in my heart to take my, my PhD and go teach in seminary, though that does open the door for that. That desire is not there. My, my calling primarily is to the church and to building up of God's bride. It's the pulpit. 
So why do it? Why, why go for another doctorate? Well, the answer is very simple. I want to build with gold, silver, and precious stones. Even if there's five people here, because ultimately I do it for God. I want to build with gold, silver, and precious stones. Why? Not so much because of you, but because God knows. And I want to build all of you with the very best. Because one day, this church, which is the temple of God, as it's being built up, God is going to ask me, Stephen, how did you build them up? Did you use your very best in building them up? Or did you just, like, give trash? And in a few years, before we even get to heaven, that's going to be evident. As to, it's going to be evident by what kind of disciples you guys turn out to be. So I realized that, and I want to build with the very best. I'll tell you what, this past week, intense. I was sharing with some of you guys, I went through, um, we landed, and then a guy picked me up at the airport, I went to bed, I woke up, nine hours of class straight through, with a little break for lunch, then right afterwards, two or three exams, then a whole bunch of reading in which I a lot of times just fell asleep while reading, wake up, barely have time to take a shower, hotel offered breakfast every morning, didn't eat any of the breakfast any single day. What I did was I got cereal, put milk, ate the cereal in the cab while going to the seminary to repeat the cycle day after day. I mean, I was exhausted. It was intense. But what motivates me, I ask myself, to do all of that, to be away from my family uh, and, and, and go through that kind of ordeal? I think I, the, end, the end of the day is verse 8. With the way I'm building, I want God to take pleasure and be glorified. That's my desire. That's, that's my... Getting another doctor, I'm not getting a pay raise. You all know that. Why? Because I want God to look down at this church, to look down at my life and say, I take pleasure in this. I am glorified with the way this church is being built. And so, I hope to lead you in, in, in a way that leads by example. I, I don't think you're going to accomplish anything without sacrifice, without hard work. You could sit there and talk about change, or you could sit there and work hard and do it. And you could do it in prayer and get involved. And I just urge you, um, I say this to each of you, go, go up, bring your best, and let's build the church of God together. Why? So that God may look down on us and have pleasure and be glorified. I think that's a great reason. And I want us to all do it for that reason. Let's pray.